Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I am your host. I'm recording this underneath a very warm blanket in an Airbnb in Portland right now. And my voice is sort of shot because I've been at this conference and I've been talking too much. So that's why I sound like this. (laughs) Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what is going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. A quick content note, this episode does mention a case of sexual assault. We do not get into the details, but I just wanted to let you know. Also, this is the last episode of our crime mini-season. After this, the show will take another quick break, and then I will be back in your delicate, waxy ear holes on November 5th. That mini-season will be a tiny bit different than the last three that you've heard this year. And for more about that, listen to the end of the episode where I will give you a little bit of behind-the-scenes breakdown on what's going on with the show. But for now, let's go to the future. This episode, we are starting in the year 2060. All right, let's get to it, shall we? Sydney, David, you guys ready to face off? No. Yes, I mean, yes, we are ready to face off. We're so ready. And just to refresh everyone's memory, today we're arguing about the very famous space hit and run case from 2043. Uh, You guys perhaps were too young to remember it, but it was big news at the time. Facts of the case go like this. Two private companies have built settlements on the moon. One of them's an American tech company, and the other is Chinese. One day, an American rover runs over and kills a Chinese settler and her newborn child. And then, of course, chaos ensues. And who has jurisdiction in this case? That's the question. Sydney, uh, you're going to be up first, okay? So. Oh, great. Oh, um, no. Do I just start? Okay. Um, uh, so my first point is kind of a weird point, but we have a justice system on Earth that's designed for this. We have a justice system on Earth that is designed for hit-and-run accidents. Why should that be any different from the moon? And sure, we have two different companies, two different countries that are on the moon, but this is an American citizen. And we we actually have policy for this. Uh, Let me find it. We have the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the moon and other celestial bodies. Um, and we also have similar things to this. We also have policy. So technically, um, the moon is international waters, like international, not water, space. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> gotcha. Um, so that means that the same policies apply. And so if someone is to commit a crime in on a boat and they're an American citizen, then guess where they would get prosecuted? In America not on that ship. So why should this be any different? And also, I would like to say that if this company is ready to invest billions of dollars into getting these settlers up to the moon, then they should be ready to take responsibility for when that goes wrong and for when something happens like this. They should be ready to take people back down to the surface to be tried in a court of criminal law. Okay, interesting. Thank you. David, your thoughts? If this type of crime on the moon has been unheard of before now, this case will definitely set a precedent. And if that precedent is to send people all the way back to Earth for trial, it would cause a a number of large problems, the first being money. 
Money is what makes the world go round, and it's also what makes spaceships go round the world. A trip to the moon and back would be expensive, and although it's only one case now, the precedent could lead to billions of dollars to do what? Send settlers from the moon back to Earth? Why? To be judged by a jury of not their peers, but people who live on a different planet. They may have grown up their whole life on the moon, and suddenly they're in this foreign planet being judged by these people who have no idea about their culture. The, cause, because the moon will obviously have a different culture, a different atmosphere, if you will. And so <laughs> the people of Earth wouldn't understand their struggles, their motives, their way of life, or even their way of living. Because... The moon doesn't just have a different atmosphere, it doesn't have an atmosphere. People will have to live indoors or go outside in pressurized suits. Murders could be committed in ways that the people of Earth just don't understand. Accidents could happen that would make the Earthlings of the jury, who don't know the risks of living, to the, of living on the moon, jump to the conclusion of murder. And even if we dealt with all those problems, we still go back to money. Because what will start out as just a hole in our government's budget will become something impossible to deal with as the colony grows and grows. Eventually, sending all the criminals back to Earth just won't be feasible anymore. At that point, we will need a criminal justice system on the moon. So why not start early at two people being murdered by a rover in the early days of the colony? All right. Sydney, time for you to ask David your question. Okay, so say this guy... Um moon murder someone this guy did moon murder someone okay so the moon police catch him the moon courts say yeah he's guilty then he goes to moon prison <laughs> i love that phrase um now the problem is here prisons need resources and resources are not in abundance on the moon. There is oxygen that they need to keep these prisoners alive there is mm -hmm. food and water and heat and why would we put this much effort into bringing these criminals, these murderers, these bad people so much into our society? Why should we care for them? They killed people. Well, I was actually interested in that. Um, and the thing is, like I said before, the moon is a different planet. Um, it, it, it's going to have different things. And it is... Um, like I said, it's eventually going to need a criminal justice system, which so people are eventually going to have to figure out how to deal with that. It doesn't have to be prisons. The prison system is something that's been such ingrained into our society that we, like as Americans or as people of a lot of most of the places in the world, uh, can't really think of a way that it, it wouldn't be there. But if they, they could, there are definitely, there are people who are proposing different ways of dealing with the problem than prisons on the moon, and it's not something that we can just ignore. Can I jump in here really quick? Yes, you can. Um, okay, so let's say one of these moon things, how do we know that these people won't commit the crime again? And let's say they do commit this crime again, what happens next? We can't put them in moon prison because moon prison doesn't exist. Would we send them out into the moon to just uh, starve to death freeze the thing what is, would happen that's uh that's a question that i personally can't answer right now you know what is prepared for things like this earth prison <laughs> <laughs> 
That's true. Class, what do you think? So the, the settlers on the moon, uh, those who commit crimes, should they be brought down to Earth and, trialed, and tried here? Or should Have they work out their own yet? system? Uh, no, I thought we were going to ask them, then I can ask my question. Um, if I'm correct, the, the people were killed by a rover. That's correct. So I don't think that would count as murder, really. Well, it was people were driving and operating the rover, and just like uh, just like here so on Earth, kind of like it could have been like manslaughter, a hit and run. Not on yeah, purpose. exactly, exactly. It could have been something like that, which the Earth courts who don't know the they don't know like the culture of the moon, they don't know like when people would be normally like driving around the rovers. They don't know like like things about like you know like yeah like when they would be driving around the rovers, like how how like if the rovers have some things that could kill people, but it's it's really just standard practice on the moon. They don't they don't know that uh, that uh, that culture of the moon and they also don't know the, the the technicalities of the of the gravity aspect. So it's really it's not fair to judge someone of a judge and a jury on Earth who lives on the moon, whose crime was committed on a whole different planet with a whole different culture and a whole different physical like gravity and atmosphere and way of life and way of living uh, and you can't and you can't just like tear someone away from their home and make them be judged against a bunch of earthlings from a different planet well, vehicular manslaughter on the moon is still vehicular manslaughter i'm not sure if you understand the gravity of this situation it, and uh, yes that pun was nice intended pun. <laughs> but i mean if you're in a different area you should in the place in your surroundings you should like take this is somewhere completely different we should build rules based off of what this place exactly. is. So That's what, what about, yeah, what about, what about just checking so in with the whole class here. If you're pro moon courts, raise your hand. Honestly, I don't oh, think no. it matters that much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little divided. All right, so say, Wait, say so and if you're con, say con. What is that? If you're against, if you're against the moon court. What I'm saying is that laws should be added on the moon. Like, mm -hmm. some specific situations can only happen in zero gravity on the moon. But that doesn't mean we have to entirely reshape a justice system for this. But so, well, that's we should, kind of like okay. saying we have a justice system in America. Why do we need it in other countries? Yeah, like, we, we have, have a different justice systems. Uh, for the different places, this is a different place. It needs a different justice system, and it's going to need one event. Like it's going to happen, and so it should happen sooner. It's it's a different place with different rules. It has different. It, it, like it has a different culture. It's like it's like how different countries do. Have All right. Well, we could we could yeah. debate uh, gov you know systems of government for hours and hours and hours. We unfortunately. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here and we are out of time. So I'll, we'll have to wrap it up for this week. These have been very, very uh, incredibly just activating and exciting topics. And I'm just so, one I'm so glad and delighted to see uh, how you've all grown over the course of this year in Debate Club. This has been the last and final debate of the school year. Aww. But we're gonna have a, a fantastic party next great. week. So um, yeah, please, I encourage all of you to, uh, to bring something if you'd like. Uh, it is a potluck, so. Yeah, feel free. So I'm gonna bring myself. <laughs> I'm all right. Me too. I'll Woo! see you at the party next Woo! week. Let's do it. Yeah. Great job. Okay, space crime, moon court. Honestly, I would watch Moon Court, the TV show. Who would host that show? The Honorable Judge Janelle Monet. Maybe Bailiff Willow Smith. I'm just saying it's a good idea. Anyway, this whole season has been about crime on our earthly planet about surveillance and technology and forensics and how all of that might change who gets accused and caught and convicted. But what happens when we take all of that stuff and put it into a totally foreign and hostile environment? Let's just launch right into today's big case. Do you get it? Launch? Okay, sorry. 
So it really boils down to kind of a bitter divorce. This is Lauren Grush, a senior space reporter at The Verge. And this bitter divorce involves two people, a woman named Anne McLean and a woman named Summer Warden. And recently, Warden accused McLean of logging into her bank account without permission. She accessed what she said was a joint bank account between the two of them uh, to move around funds, to make sure that bills were being paid. But Anne's wife, Summer Warden, claims that she did that without her permission and so is essentially uh, accusing her of identity theft. Normally, this would be just like a regular domestic dispute. Like, why are we talking about a couple's honestly kind of boring dirty laundry on this podcast? You're right. When I first read about it, I thought, who cares? But then this is kind of the first time, if it turns out that Anne is convicted, it would be the first time someone had committed a crime while physically being in space. You see, Anne McLean isn't just a regular person. So Anne McLean is one of NASA's astronauts. If her name sounds familiar, it might be because she was at the center of a completely different controversy a few months ago. Because she was supposed to go on the first all-female spacewalk uh, on the International Space Station. But unfortunately, she withdrew herself from that spacewalk because of uh, inappropriately sized spacesuits available on the International Space Station. And so her taking herself out of the spacewalk caused a bit of hoopla when it was thought that NASA canceled the first all-female spacewalk to replace her with a man. (laughs) Now, I do want to say that before the New York Times piece that broke this story about the identity fraud accusation came out, my understanding is that Anne McLean was not publicly out of the closet. So not only is this messy personal drama that would normally never make the New York Times, it's also drama that has sort of outed someone, which is not good. And again, the only reason that any of this is interesting, the only reason that this is even a story, is that this is the first ever space crime. Or at least it's the first ever space crime in which the alleged victim has sought legal recourse. Personally, I have a very hard time believing that zero crimes have ever been committed in space. I'm sure that there have been things done in space that could probably be considered dubious, Um, And, you know, there are certain things that astronauts have done that have been against the rules. My favorite that comes to mind is the Skylab mutiny, as it's called, though it can be debated if it's a mutiny. But it was this time that a bunch of astronauts on Skylab, they decided that they were being overworked. And so one day just decided not to do any of their work and looked out the window at space. I don't know if you could call that a crime, but, you know, they were definitely not doing what NASA wanted them to do. So there's a lot of myths, you know, or legends. This is Michelle Hanlon. She's the associate director of the Air and Space Flight Program at the University of Mississippi Law School. There's a, a cosmonaut story where um, somebody became untethered and the uh, the other astronaut waited to the very last minute to retether them. This is definitely the first public crime in space, if you will. In those other rumored cases, nobody got the courts involved. Nobody charged anybody with a crime. And so this strange personal domestic dispute has become international news. 
And it's international news because it's a window into tomorrow, into the kinds of questions that we are going to have to ask sooner than later. We're sending humans to space. And while the astronauts that, have got, that we send to space right now are particularly unique and phenomenal individuals, you know, we, they are carefully selected from whichever country they come from. They have uh, exhibited tremendous amounts of discipline, self-discipline, of intellect, of physical capabilities. That's not always going to be the case. What happens when they start sending bozos like you and me up there? And when we come back, we're going to get into what exactly the law says right now about space crime and what it doesn't say. What do pirates have to do with any of this? And does Elon Musk have to follow any of these rules? All that and more after a quick break. Okay, so what laws actually govern space? It turns out that this purported identity fraud, despite being the first space crime, which sounds very exciting, this particular incident uh, is actually very straightforward. This, is, this case is just cut and dried. On the International Space Station, there is something called the Intergovernmental Agreement. And it's a document that kind of dictates, you know, who is in charge or what laws will apply if another person on the space station accuses them of doing, you know, doing something that's wrong or, or committing a crime. Um, and it has an entire article about crimes in, in space or crimes on ISS. And what's very, very clear is that if a crime occurs um, and only the nationals of one state, one country are implicated or affected by that crime, then it stays wholly within the jurisdiction of that particular country. Because both Anne and her estranged wife are U.S. citizens, this will be handled in U.S. court. But the case has brought more attention to the places where the law is far less clear. If Anne McLean had committed a crime against, say, a Japanese astronaut, things would get a little bit more complicated. It, it's very, it says basically that the parties will agree to talk about it and figure out which jurisdiction should apply. Think about things about that happen on Earth um, across borders. We talk about extradition. We have diplomatic meetings and negotiations about what should happen um, with respect to certain crimes. And that's exactly that. That's the tenor of the um, intergovernmental agreement. So if Anne was accused of committing a crime against a Japanese astronaut, then the U.S. and the Japanese government would have to talk to each other and come to some agreement about how and where the case should be tried. But the intergovernmental agreement only applies to the International Space Station. It does not apply to, say, any future settlements on the moon or Mars, or a space hotel that various private companies have talked about launching. And if you have a guest from Japan and you have a staff member from Finland and you have another guest from Chile and one accuses the other of, of hitting them or of defaming them or of stealing something, you know, what law applies there? Right now, the Outer Space Treaty says that nations are responsible for their people in space. There's one clause that says you as a country are required to supervise any of your own citizens that go into space. So even if you are on a private craft, if you are an American, the U.S. is responsible for you. If you're Japanese, Japan is responsible for you. So if, say, someone from New Zealand is accused of a crime against someone from Finland on a Japanese space hotel, what happens? So New Zealand is the thief. Finland is the victim. Um, the alleged thief, I should say, for all those Kiwis out there. Um, <laughs> 
the New Zealand's going to say, well, no, you should prosecute that person here. Um, and But a, a smart plaintiff's attorney is going to say, all right, a bad thing happened, but who's responsible? Under the Outer Space Treaty, the states themselves are responsible. So Finland, uh, a, a smart Finnish plaintiff's attorney is going to say, I'm going to sue New Zealand for the value of the watch and all of the pain and suffering and the emotional distress that was um, came out of um, what happened. And that's what would happen because we don't recognize human behavior in space. We only recognize the activities of states. And without a clear set of rules, this kind of lawyerly finagling is going to become common. When, when we have areas of law that are very cloudy and gray, who wins? The lawyers, right? Because they're the ones who are getting paid to figure out how to walk, you know, get through this maze of whether they're, you know, common law cases and so forth. We don't, when we're looking at space, we don't want to spend our money, we, you know, on lawyers, to spend it on getting out there and exploring more. There's also a framework here that people sometimes use, which basically says that space is like open water. So the law of the sea applies. It's called the Special Maritime and Territorial Jurisdiction of the United States. And it basically says, you know, if you were to do something bad in space and you're a U.S. national, you know, this type of part of the criminal code would apply. But the Maritime Code really only deals with the really big ticket items. It really kind of covers the nastier things like assault and kidnapping and robbery. But, you know, most crimes these days, or at least a substantial amount of crimes these days, aren't that. When you think about what is going to happen, what do we have to be prepared for? I don't think it's murder. I think it's going to be slip and fall. It's going to be, hey, you know, somebody stole my watch. Um, it's going to be things that happen to us every day in life. When I teach uh, space law here in Mississippi, I talk a lot about how space is everything and it's all encompassing and we need family lawyers in space and we need uh, finance lawyers in space. So, you know, we like to, as as academics and as journalists and, and people who want to get a conversation started, we talk about murder because it's sexy and, you know, can you imagine? And, and of course, you know, murder in space would be so easy, you know, just cut that line or just throw that person out of the uh, station. But it's really fundamentally the very human things that sometimes get overlooked that we need to deal with in space. But it's also kind of hard to figure out exactly what the laws should be, because we don't know what space is going to be like. What's a moon community going to look like and and who's going to be there? We can't send people to the moon with this whole entire, you know, pop-up jurisdictional (laughs) plan. In the intro, you heard the student actors talk about whether or not you could even have a jury of your peers if you have people from space tried back on Earth. I want all those students in in my law school. Yeah, (laughs) tell them to apply to the University of Mississippi, Um, because these are the kinds of things we talk about all the time, Um, because I'll be honest, um, that's the first time um, anybody has raised with me the concept of the jury of your peers. So kudos to those students, because that's a really great point. Um, is it a jury of your peers if if you are being ju- judged by people who have never been to the moon? Do you hear that, teens? You are smarter than law students. But Michelle does think we can start laying down some really basic foundations. Okay, any human in space will have these 10, 15, 20 basic rights. And so anytime anybody goes to space, we agree that these things, so things, and it's so basic, a right to oxygen, right? A right to a, a 
an independent line of communication back to Earth. So we don't have to worry about company towns, you know, blocking communications between workers and, and home. Um, things like, you know, the, move the, um, the rights in, enumerated in the, in the UN Declaration of Human Rights into space. But we also want to be really thoughtful about what we do and don't want to replicate in our space travels. In general, what I see is that people assume that we will copy and paste a lot of what our current society looks like into space. That's Erica Nesfold, an astrophysicist and developer for Universe Sandbox and the co-founder of the Just Space Alliance. One of the reasons we might want to think about not copying and pasting um, our current approach to legality is that there are a lot of issues with it. And that is Lucianne Walkowicz, an astronomer at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago and the other co-founder of the Just Space Alliance. Foremost among them is that I'm not sure that I would characterize the criminal legal system we have as seeking justice as its primary objective. Its primary goal is retribution and punishment, um, and not necessarily justice in a way that I think um, I would define justice. I've talked about the problems with the incarceration system in the United States on the show before, but a quick recap. Prisons in the U.S. are directly descended from slave patrols and chattel slavery. Today, in the United States, there are nearly 2.3 million incarcerated people. The U.S. locks up more people per capita than any other nation, 698 per 100,000, which is really high. And of course, those incarcerated people are not evenly distributed across the population. The U.S. prison system is deeply flawed, and I will link to more resources on that in the show notes. But the point is that we probably want to think twice before we simply package up this whole arrangement and ship it out into the solar system. And even beyond the many, many ethical reasons to question whether this is a structure we want to replicate, there are also just a ton of logistical reasons that prisons are probably not a good idea in space. Just to build a prison takes a lot of resources and labor and energy that you could be spending on building farms or habitats on Mars or wherever you are. Um, and then keeping people in prison is just a waste of their time and, and labor. You have to feed and house and, and keep your prisoners warm. Um, and they're presumably not giving you any labor in return for that, as they would if they were functional members of your society. So if you're not going to build and run prisons in space, what are your other options? Shipping them back to Earth is going to be extremely costly in the same way that getting out to Mars is going to be really costly. And then what are your alternatives? You could force them to work, but prison slave labor is generally frowned upon by most people when they think about it and also impractical in that they don't tend to be very good laborers in that case because they're pretty unhappy with you. There is the version of justice that you often see in science fiction shows where people are constantly being thrown out of airlocks. You could banish them, but in, in a space settlement, that's probably essentially the same thing as killing them. In space settlements, especially the early ones, each person is both a resource provider and a resource suck. If you are in a community, um, probably let's use Mars because it's a bit farther away, of 40 people and you have um, rations for a certain amount of time and a murder is committed, um, well, why do you want to keep on feeding and housing that murderer, right? That's a value. It's a waste of really valuable resources if, if it's somebody that you can't trust and you have to sequester somewhere. But on the flip side, remember, you don't have a lot of hands in your early space colony. 
Unless someone has done something truly heinous, you probably don't want to throw them out into the icy depths of space to die. Even if you believe that the death penalty is sometimes warranted, which, for the record, I do not, you probably need to figure out what to do with lower-level offenders. And if death is going to be a potential punishment, you definitely want to feel very confident in the process of deciding on that penalty for someone. It tends not to occur to them that if you go for an airlock for every crime sort of system, um, it doesn't occur to them what they might feel about that if they were the ones accused of a crime. And in space, the conditions also might aggravate a type of injustice we already see today on Earth, where certain people are treated differently by the legal system. I worry that things will happen like maybe the person accused of a crime has vital skills for the survival of the settlement. Maybe they're the only doctor. Does that mean that their judgment and their punishment or corrective measures that the society thinks are necessary are less harsh for them than maybe someone whose skills are replicated by someone else? Um, Are we going to end up with a stratification of society where criminal justice applies differently to different people because of what they can contribute to the settlement. That worries me. But here is the thing. We don't have to do things the way we do them on Earth. Space is not exactly a clean slate, but it's certainly a new opportunity. It's a place where we could actually rethink certain structures, certain ways of doing things on Earth that feel so entrenched that they are hard to change. Not impossible, I want to say. We should never resign ourselves to injustice because changing things seems hard. But in space, there is nothing to change yet. We have a real chance to reconsider what justice might look like. These conversations in this kind of fictional, science fictional space are invitations to reevaluate the ways that we are implementing the values that we purport to have. So what are those values? What do we want justice to look like? One version of justice that has been floated here on Earth and that could be implemented in space is something called transformative justice. Yeah, so transformative justice is an alternative to incarceration. I'm Bianca Loriano, and I'm an educator, and I focus on human sexuality as well as being a human (laughs) on the planet that we're living on. And I called her to talk about justice off this planet and how transformative justice might work in space talking about uh, having someone just, you know, be tossed out into the ether. Like, that's also real. (laughs) That's very real. Um, And there's so many things that come into play with uh, what's possible. All that and more after a quick break. So this is not the first time that I've talked about transformative justice on this podcast. You can hear more about it on the RoboCop episode. But the basic gist is that transformative justice really tries to shift the conversation away from punishment and towards repair. And it offers the opportunity to everyone involved, including the person who's done harm and the people who were harmed, to be able to share what their experiences were and focus on what can happen to make amends and move forward uh, as a community. One of the challenges in explaining how transformative justice works and what it is is that it's different every time, which makes it hard to scale and standardize and sometimes hard for people to understand like what it even is. It's hard work. And so it's not easy. And that totally makes sense. 
for people who are like, I don't, I don't get it. It makes sense because it's constantly shifting and changing because harm looks different and impacts people differently. Each community and each victim will have their own process here. But usually what happens is that the victim assembles a group of people called a pod. And their job is to gather information and kind of serve as a resource to this person who has been harmed and figure out how to help them move forward. And sometimes that does involve reaching out to the person that we would traditionally focus on, the person who did the harm, the perpetrator. Sometimes what it looks like is a letter or a phone call or an in-person meeting where the inner circle people reach out to this person and say, hey, we understand that this harm has occurred and we want to know if you're interested in joining this process. As you might expect, not everybody says yes to that request. Sometimes those people say no. Sometimes those people, you know, will make their own archive and talk trash. I mean, there's so many different reactions um, from the person who's identified as the one causing harm. But the key point of transformative justice, and I think the thing that is hardest for some of us to wrap our minds around, is that it's not about punishment. It's about repair. How do we make sure that the victim gets what they need and can heal? Now, there is another method that is related to transformative justice, but not the same thing, and that's called restorative justice. Restorative justice really does bring the people who did harm and the people who were harmed together in a very specific way with the goal of not disposing of this person in a way that can really cause additional harm. So restorative justice has a different approach to um, divesting and disposability, but also focusing on what's possible for the entire community. So it takes a different approach. In general, and again, there's no one way that this goes, transformative justice usually focuses on one party, usually the victim, and making sure that they can move on and be healed. If this all sounds kind of hard to understand, that's normal. But it's also really important to note that this way of handling the bad things that humans sometimes do to one another is way older than courts or jails or judges. Restorative and transformative justice has been the way that so many communities have handled the messiness of human behavior, particularly indigenous communities all over the world. The biggest challenge to applying them to, say, the United States is that they are sometimes hard to scale. Each process looks different and can take a really long time, and it might not always work. I haven't really seen any I've seen one transformative justice approach that has actually come to an end and it was fulfilled in the way that all the parties wanted. It was a case in Chicago, and we're not going to go into the details, but you can read the full account of what happened at transformharm.tumblr.com. But the basic gist is that a young man sexually assaulted a young woman at an event for an organization called the Black Youth Project 100. And this woman did not want to get the police involved in this case. And that young Black woman chose to go to the leadership of the BYP chapter in Chicago and share that she really wanted some kind of process to help this young person understand what he had done to her, how he had harmed her, how this had infected her experience with herself, with her community, with building relationships with other men, with trusting activists and organizing circles. And in this case, when they reached out to the man who had assaulted her, he actually agreed to participate. At first, they communicated through proxies, so they did not have to be in the same room. 
But after a long process, they eventually did meet face to face. They were able to speak to each other face to face and in 3D. And this young man was able to say, I hear what you're saying and I understand this harm and I've had to unlearn it. And it's been an amazing gift that he was able to go through this um, process with her. And so that was like the only or the first um, process that I saw that worked. And it took two years. And so that's something that I really think is important for people to understand is that when you enter a transformative or restorative justice um, approach, it does not end quickly. And this is why some people poo-poo the idea of trying to replace the carceral system with something like restorative or transformative justice. Because it's hard, and it takes a long time, and it doesn't always work. And it's really hard to figure out sometimes how to make that kind of system fit into a culture obsessed with efficiency and scale. But in space, where you're going to have to operate in a much smaller community, and you're going to have to figure out how to address harm done, and move on together, otherwise you put the entire settlement at risk, this is a method that could actually work. For a future where it's going to be small groups of people who are surviving, I think one of the biggest um, goals would need to be how do we preserve what we hold right now? How are we going to preserve the parts that make us whole? And what can we do moving forward? So yeah, so I think it's really complicated. <laughs> it's not like a quick and easy way to imagine, but I find it a fun activity to really dream about what else is possible, especially when this is like the world that we've inherited <laughs> and we need to like dream a little bit bigger. And space could even be like a mini justice lab where people try out all kinds of alternatives and try to figure out the best ones. And maybe we can then take that knowledge from space and bring it back down to help make our Earth justice more, well, just. One of the things that's exciting about conversations like this is that it really invites us to think about our values in a very concrete way in terms of taking those values and creating something out of them. And that is also an invitation to look at the values that we are currently implementing in our current systems here on Earth. What's most important, I think, is that we don't assume that the big structures in place right now on Earth are in some way natural or perfect. They're not. We know that. And there can be better ways. Let's not just copy and paste the things that are not working on Earth into the solar system. One of the fun things about thinking about space settlement is that it lets you imagine what a great society you could make if you were designing one from scratch. And so even if we don't get there in my lifetime, if having those conversations can improve things here on Earth, that seems like a happy accident to me. Space can be an opportunity to really reconsider how a community can and should be built. Let's not throw that opportunity away. That's all for this future and for this mini-season. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Special thanks to Veronica Simonetti and Aaron Latz at the Women's Audio Mission, where all of the intro scenes were recorded this season. Special thanks also to Evan Johnson, who played Mr. Morton, and who coordinated the actors of the junior acting troupe who play the students in the intros this season. 
Today's debaters were played by Sydney Perry Thistle and David Romero. If you want to hear the full debate unedited, which includes a lot more fun and weird arguments about Moon Court, you can hear the full cut of the students' conversation by becoming a patron at $5 per episode or more, which gets you access to the bonus podcast. If you are a patron uh, at $5 or more and you've already heard the bonus podcast, you already know what I'm about to say. But I do want to just pop in at the end of this episode with a little bit of behind the scenes about the show and the future of the show. So this year, as you may know, I tried something new with these little mini seasons where all the future scenes are linked up and all of the episodes have a common theme. I thought that this would be a fun, sort of like big swing kind of experiment, and linking up the intros was a really interesting challenge for me, and I honestly like really enjoyed it. Um, it turns out many listeners did not enjoy it. And I have heard enough hate for this structure uh, and the mini-season intros, whether that was the snow globe or the friends from the future or the debaters, that I'm going to stop doing these little linked-up intros. I still will do a themed mini-season starting in November, five episodes weekly about power, and then next year, I will go back to the old format. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I am kind of bummed that this experiment did not work the way I had hoped and that people did not like the intros that I really liked. But you live and you learn, I guess. Um, so for those of you who stuck around, even if you didn't like the new format, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And if you know someone who stopped listening because they didn't like the intros, um, maybe tell them to come back, I guess. If you want to suggest a future that I should take on for the next mini-season or just in general for next year, send me a note on Twitter or Facebook or by email, which is the best way, at info at flashforwardpod.com. I do love hearing ideas from listeners. If you want to discuss this episode or just the future in general and share weird links and uh, complain about how bad Amazon is, uh, you can join the Flash Forward Facebook group. Just search Facebook for Flash Forward Podcast and ask to join. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references I've hidden in the episode, you can email me at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you are right, I will send you something cool. And if you're waiting on your something cool from a previous episode, I'm going to send them out next week. I try to do them kind of in batches because it takes a long time. Okay, that's all for this episode and this mini season. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.